When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest this week is Andrew Parrish. Andrew's Twitter account, AP Abacus, has grown based on his access to rumors and information about crypto. He is no stranger to controversy and getting information flow. Andrew is aware his views and tweets can upset some, especially those in power he may be calling out. Andrew's background in information gathering helped him identify several high-profile issues with businesses like FTX and Gemini, and his Twitter account has become a go-to source for breaking rumors. Andrew is the co-founder of Arch Public, which is building automated trading algorithms and blockchain authentication for brands and alternative assets. We dive into the Gemini, Genesis, and DCG saga before raising an alarm on the coordinated actions of crypto regulators. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Parrish. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Great to be here, man. Appreciate it. The way I found you is just on Twitter, suddenly there's what I thought was a reporter, financial journalist, analyst. I couldn't really tell because it's pseudonymous, but you were reporting a lot on the Gemini, DCG, Genesis creditor situation. And as a former professional investor who's dealt with bankruptcies and workouts, it definitely seemed you were getting a level of information that was above and beyond stuff we would call behind the wall or in the room. And I was like, this guy either has unbelievable connections or he is in there somehow getting this type of information. So maybe to start, for people who haven't been fully invested in figuring out, why don't you tell people what happened, the players, give them a setup of the DCG, Genesis, Gemini situation. First and foremost, I'm in my 40s, long history in traditional finance, got into crypto really as an observer late 2014, started building a few things in 15, 16, and one of them was reasonably successful, one of them wasn't, shut it down. So that is a background, given my age and that I walk through the financial crisis as a mouth-breathing adult, that I walk through the Enron scandal as a almost mouth-breathing adult. I walk through the dot-com era, MCI WorldCom. I've seen the Madoff stuff. I've seen all of that. And so the trappings of it, I can sniff a little bit before maybe others in the crypto ecosystem potentially can. My business partner also is 40s and 
we talk a thousand times a day and he's an old school ASICs miner. He had 3,200 ASICs running in the Southeast back in 2013. So he's an old school OG kind of guy, knows all the players and I know plenty of people, but he told me just looking and seeing and thinking, you know, there's a little systemic stuff going on. If I had to guess, there's something going down at DCG and I'm like, what? DCG is the Goldman Sachs almost of crypto. They own darn near half of the brands in crypto that mean anything. And what are you talking about? So I just kept my ears and eyes open. And once the FTX thing happened, I started to follow some of the veins that found their ways to different organs. And I thought, okay, this is going to be something that's going on. And I maybe tweeted a few things about FTX, tweeted a few things about systemic potential issues. And maybe I guess the way that I set them or hearkening back to previous trad five scandals and bankruptcies and systemic issues that caught the eye of some pretty meaningful folks inside of the Genesis and DCG process. And so I started having conversations with those folks and I'm not a journalist. I'm not a reporter. I'm not any of those things. I'm just a guy. Those conversations turned into feeling good about some information that I thought I'd put out there. And then somehow it took on a life of its own. So here we are. Just giving people a little bit more of a background of, as you mentioned, DCG was the Goldman Sachs of crypto started by Barry Silver, this billionaire. Genesis was this trading arm. What's the relationship to Gemini and how does this all intertwine? Really the way that it breaks down with DCG and then Genesis and then Gemini, it's not funny. All of this stuff is difficult because there's real people behind these dollars, especially in Gemini. I've, I've had a real heart for Gemini people. I've had so many people reach out to me and get my Gemini earn money back. I thought it was okay there. Winklevoss twins did all they could, play within the rules, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, those people with 10 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand, it's meaningful money to them. A lot of people in this process, it, Genesis and Gemini screwed up because they just sounded like. But DCG is the parent company and owns Genesis. Genesis is essentially an institutional-esque prime broker amongst other businesses inside of Genesis. But for the purposes of this conversation, they're a prime broker that either custodied or lent on digital assets of all kinds and really were the first name in institutional lending in the crypto ecosystem. So much so that Again, Gemini and the Winklevoss twins, who are sharp guys, thought it was the right thing to do to work with Genesis and to trust their architecture. The cascade of corporations here, DCG parent company, Genesis is the lending arm, and Gemini used Genesis for their earn program and to generate that proverbial yield for mom and pop type folks. I was a Gemini earn customer. I used the product. I got out of it about four months before this happened, not because I'm some super smart guy, but because I was putting more money into my company currently. And so what was it that let Gemini even get retail exposure to a product like this? Because this wasn't allowed on Coinbase or other platforms. I guess they made a decision. First of all, yield was a hot issue in the crypto space for a two plus year period. The advent of DeFi and frankly, the popularity of DeFi was founded on the back of yield and frankly, wild APY numbers. 
not just eight or 10%, but own and purchase this goofy coin with the symbol GOF and we'll pay you 27,000% based on whatever. There was a lot of that going on in the space. And truth be told, people made a lot of money, enormously risky, but people made a lot of money. And so Jim and I thought, let's be careful and conservative, but let's offer a program here. We've jumped through all the hoops. We've sat, been the face of congressional hearings. We've got a bit license, yada, yada, yada. So let's do this work. They chose Genesis as their lender of choice that when individual folks deposited their funds into their Gemini Earn program, this is very different than if you are trading or just holding Bitcoin or Ethereum on Gemini proper. There's another subsection inside of Gemini called Gemini Earn, where you can put your tokens into the Gemini Earn program and they're going to pay you 2%, 4%, 8%. Their Gemini dollar at one point was paying 8%. A lot of people found that uniquely valuable. That Gemini dollar was paying that 8% number when real interest rates in the traditional finance world was paying basically 0.1%. People found that compelling. People found some safety in the way that the Winklevoss twins and Gemini went about their business. They were relying on Genesis to be a worthy partner that they could trust. And that ended up not being the case. And so Gemini and others, but Gemini, I think, is the largest, lent that to Genesis. And then Genesis subsequently went out and lent that to hedge funds, places like Three Arrows that blew up. And to me, that was the first crack of when Luna collapsed, and that took out Three Arrows. Maybe discuss what happened then, now that we know about this promissory note and other things that may have occurred when Genesis lent some of that money out. The best way to describe that is... Some people are visual learners. Some people are audio type learners. I'm a big movie and show guy. And so I've told people to go watch Too Big to Fail or go watch the other movie with Brad Pitt and Steve Carell. I forget what it's called. The Big Short. The Big Short. When they go to describe CDO, collateralized debt obligation, or in that scene where they're at the craps table and one guy's making a bet and the other guy makes a bet on his bet and then other people make leverage bets on the bet on the bet. It's not as egregious as the financial crisis was, but it's very much like that. You pledge an asset, there's interest, and then there's another set of folks that are pledging more assets to generate yield on those assets that are pledged for the other yield. It's a cascading effect. And if it was just a one-to-one type of product and not being lent to one entity and then lent out to another entity, you probably wouldn't have that big of a problem, even if the negative price movement of the entire ecosystem down anywhere between 75 to 90% on literally just about every asset Bitcoin included that would be okay if it was just Gemini Earn and Gemini Earn was the one generating the yield and not using another party. But when you use another party and then that party is also working with a 3AC or a Luna or a number of folks that are then making leverage bets on the price of Grayscale products and their relationship to NAV Well, now you're four bets removed that are leveraged. And when one of the big ones go, everybody's got a problem. That's what happened. I saw it. I frankly 
made the claim that there's a 99.9% chance that Genesis is going to go bankrupt about two months before it happened, because I've been there and done that. Not only that, but you saw some of the communication that was coming out. That first was, we don't have any exposure to FDX. We got 7 million exposure to FDX. Well, wait a minute. We got more than that. So we were just getting this two times previous. All of that tells a story that there's problems here. Then you have some confidential conversations with some folks inside the organization, outside the organization, folks that have seen spreadsheets and capital positions. Then you hear that DCG and Genesis are trying to raise a billion dollars when literally the entire world thinks putting money into crypto is an insane idea because FTX just went to zero. It was all fairly predictable once a couple of dominoes had fallen. It became a point of reference where people from about any angle in the DCG Genesis story could have a conversation. And because I didn't blab or embarrass anybody, I guess people trusted me. I think it becomes important in this of where we are today. But when Three Arrows collapsed, which was fifteen to twenty billion dollar hedge fund that was levered up many times. Genesis had exposure, people knew about it, but then there was this claim that Genesis was fine. And now, I mean, not being an insider, this is all public, it sounds like what had happened was DCG had taken the hole that Three Arrows had made in Genesis's balance sheet and offered a promissory note to them. This eventually got contested. So can you kind of explain to people what that transaction was? Because that was what was contended more recently. There were two transactions that are somewhat associated with what you just described. So one, DCG effectively purchased 3AC's GBTC position and loan against GBTC, the position that they were playing against that particular trade, DCG purchased it. In other words, they owed Genesis that money. Secondarily, DCG had taken out a promissory note that we still don't even really know what it was connected to or why. $1.1 billion that had a longer tail on it, a 10-year tail. And there were questions about, is that promissory note callable or not called if Genesis goes bankrupt? Come to find out, it was because they were forced to essentially turn that note into DCG equity. So it was a convertible. That $1.1 billion promissory note, once Genesis went bankrupt and they were putting together a deal, that promissory became effectively callable slash convertible. They converted it to DCG equity. Now, you can have 9 million people on here that can talk about what the value of DCG equity is. You're going to get 9 million different answers. Nobody's going to know. So that promissory note, along with the position that they purchased from Genesis, another loan that they purchased, at minimum, DCG was on the hook for, oh, let's call it 1.6 plus, almost $7 billion. At minimum, that put Genesis in a really, really tough spot. And that was only with one problematic client like 3AC. There was a whole host of other problems associated with ecosystem value destruction over the course of an 18-month period, left massive holes on Genesis' loan book, 
and just their, their balance sheet overall. In many ways, they were effectively insolvent in April, May, June of 2022. It really seemed to start to unwind, in your point, when FTX went down and then the claims started to get larger, there clearly was a problem. The real alarm for people was when Genesis stopped paying interest and refused to let people redeem. Refused to allow people to withdraw money. This again goes back to being around, being a meaningful adult during the financial crisis. When Madoff had real problems, it had nothing to do with somebody asking for a just normal withdrawal activity. But when the markets crashed and everybody was looking for a lifeboat, the withdrawal activity skyrocketed and he didn't have the capital. He just didn't have the capital. And that's essentially what has happened across a bunch of different spots. But Genesis and a couple others being the largest is that you stop withdrawals because you can't meet the demand. And then what happens is, is you're found, you may look good on a Zoom meeting because you're wearing a cool shirt, but you don't have any pants on. And that's what that reveals when asset prices plunge. It seems like Gemini really was trying to win in the court of public opinion. I've seen creditor debates. Usually they're between law firms. It's based on what you think your standing is and what the documents say and what a court would eventually rule on. So it's subjective. But it felt like on this notion of was the loan callable, to me, it first felt like, well, they certainly had thought about this. And I think Barry was a bankruptcy associate when he was younger, that they had crafted the documents better. Were you surprised that it was such a public court of opinion type debate before they finally filed? We're talking about really massive brands that individuals, Cameron and Tyler, have invested large portions of their lives and their quote unquote fortunes in building these brands. So there's not just money involved, but there's an enormous amount of emotion and ego involved. And not necessarily ego in a bad sense, although that did rear its ugly head a time or two. It turning into a bit of a PR war didn't necessarily surprise me because both sides wanted to win. But more importantly, both sides wanted to manage their reputation because you think about it this way. The reason why I was convinced very early that Genesis was toast is because even if they were able to raise $500 million and somewhat settle their balance sheet. Who are they going to do business with over the next year? Who's going to come to say Genesis? Oh, you know, paid a few of those bills. Let's do a $100 million loan with you guys. No chance. The reputation had been absolutely scorched. Now you're DCG and your DCG is Barry's baby. So his side of the PR was... Let's try and save everything. But if we can't, let's be real strategic about why we can't save this and why all of our other brands are good. And what are the reasons why we built this in the first place? And why are we really great for the ecosystem so that I'm not drummed out of it for the rest of my life? It's D type stuff. Whereas the Winklevoss twins are like, just Gemini brand matters to us. Nifty Gateway was all the rage two years ago. It was a golden child of the current wave of crypto use cases two years ago. Another brand of theirs. They didn't want their personal brands torn down. And their contention was, is that we trusted these guys and we're not the bad actors here. They, they burnt us. 
And we want to make that clear to everybody so that when we walk into a room, we're not handicapped for the rest of our career in this ecosystem. That was the reason there. Whether or not it mattered in the end with the deal that was struck, I doubt it. I doubt it had any meaningful effect. Quote, unquote, internet is forever. That stuff about teachers and policemen and all that stuff, that all had a place and a purpose. And with Gemini coming out and saying that Gemini Earn users are just the mamas and papas of us all, we're going to fight for them. That's great and appreciated, but it was a PR war. Again, I put some stuff out as to who the PR team for DCG was. It's vested. They had nearly their entire staff on the DCG account and still do. They gave an exclusive to the Wall Street Journal to run a 10-page exclusive about just DCG is great and these are tough times, but it, here's the story of how things were built. You do all that because 90% of the public is taking it as they probably want it to be taken. 10% know exactly what's going on, but you do all that because, frankly, it works. And update the audience on what is the deal that was struck the most recent standing of where this all sits today? Where it stands right now, and it all has to be approved and agreed through the whole bankruptcy process, but the structure of the deal is basically, and again, I'm not an attorney, I'm not an accountant, so I'm going to get very high level, but as I understand it, 80% will be returned to Genesis creditors. What does that mean? So 80% will be returned to, for example, Gemini. Gemini will then pass that 80% to Gemini Earn users who this money is really owed to. Gemini has come out and said that they've put away another $100 million internally to add to that 80%. There's other language in the deal that talks about asset sales of any kind having to do with Genesis and DCG assets that could move that 80% anywhere to 83 to 85 to 100% if the world were to be miraculous. But 80% is the you know, what's assumed is the bottom end number, which is a fairly good number in this process. A caveat is that 80% cash that's going to be deposited in people's accounts in a month? I don't think so, but I don't know. I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer. I don't have the documents in front of me. What of that 80% is cash? What of it is crypto? What of it is some version of a distribution of DCG equity? I don't know. But 80% is a number, and they're trying to sell assets to do what they can to get to 100. And I don't even know if the sale of assets is required to move beyond 80%. It would make sense to me that why would DCG sign a deal where they're forced to sell assets to move beyond that 80% number. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But 80% is the number. And so when I've had conversations with Gemini Earn folks, 80% looks like the number. So if I were you, for the next 6 to 12 months, that's what I would expect. Because courts don't move quick. I know that you have reported a lot of information from all different sources, but you've also been one to correct the mainstream media when they might have gone too far down a story. So one of the stories you alluded to is the original Three Arrows trade, for those who aren't familiar, and it's burnt a lot of people, has been that GBTC is this large trust. It owns Bitcoin, but the NAV, the value of the assets and what it trades at, 
can differ. It used to trade at a premium, now it trades at a discount. And so what people do is borrow a bunch of money and hope the discount would close. And if it did, they would make a lot of money. But if it kept getting worse, they would get blown up three hours. But this asset is a crown jewel. And so there's rumors, I forget what paper, but I think you came out and said, this is not the intent, but it gets people very excited anytime someone talks about Grayscale being sold. There have been multiple stories where Grayscale as a brand gets sold, it's being shopped, it's those kind of things. People need to understand whether they like it or not, the amount of fees that are generated from the Grayscale Trust as it's set up are enormous, 300 to $500 million a year. That's a huge business. Just by itself, that's a huge business. If you're DCG and Grayscale, and that's frankly the only asset that's not only worth anything, but certainly the only meaningful cash flow that exists in your organization, why in the world would you sell it? There's been conversations, rumors. I'm hearing that it could sell for 400 million, 500 million. Why would you do that? Why would you sell something for 500 million when over the past five years has generated anywhere between 300 to 500 million a year in fees anyways? Barry's a smart guy. There's no way he would make a deal like that. There's just no way. He'd rather play out the dotted I's and cross T's and semicolons of a bankruptcy agreement for years than give up that kind of cash flow. Anybody that's smart would do that, whether it's moral, whether it's ethical, whether it's the right decision and how you think about right and wrong, that's a conversation for another day. But based on the numbers, you don't sell an asset for $500 million that potentially is doing $500 million a year in revenue. You just don't do it. That's one way to look at it. Two, this process by which they're attempting to turn it into an ETF. Well, turning it into an ETF and this is where I really begin to differ with what Grayscale as a brand is telling people, those fees get chopped by 70 plus percent when you turn it into an ETF. So if your main source of revenue are the current fees of GBTC slash Grayscale products, why would you be so eager legally to cut those immeasurably down? That doesn't make sense either. One could make the case that legal action and the commentary associated with this should be a spot Bitcoin ETF is just as much a PR campaign as it is anything else based on the numbers purely. Some may say, well, if you turn it into a spot ETF, the AUM, the assets under management will skyrocket because it'll be the product that'll be more accessible. I don't know. Will it? Will that be true? Not in the current environment. Because crypto assets in general exist in a very different part of the financial public's mind than they did two years ago. People aren't going to go barreling into a Bitcoin product. And the fact of the matter is, you can buy Grayscale right now in a bunch of IRAs and in financial accounts that are fidelities in the world. You can do that. So it's an interesting process conversation right now as it relates to what's going on there. The reality is, is follow the money. And the money is... Why are they incentivized in any way to turn it into an ETF, even if they win the case at the pellet level, which they may. Most people think it's crazy. Oh, there's no chance you're going to win. I've had some conversations where the briefs that they have put up for this argument are incredibly compelling. And given the makeup of courts in the United States generally skewing a bit more conservative, 
those courts may have an appetite for sending a message to government agencies that generally don't have a check on them other than the courts. It's a very interesting thing to watch. There's a lot at play here. To me, my take has been, I think you make a lot of logical sense in how you've laid it out. The funny thing about the ETF conversion is if it happened, I agree, it's speculation to say when the assets go up, it does make it a way more attractive acquisition target by TradeFi. If you have the ETF license, then suddenly you become the thing that everyone else wants to buy to be the gold ETF or the SPY. You have that BTC ETF, that would be valuable. Yeah, it would be super valuable. And you could build a lot of other ETFs around that first ETF. It's like you've created the first Ford Model T and now there's 97 different Fords you could buy. That is a valuable asset. And maybe that's the end game. Maybe the end game is it turns into to an ETF, they make some money off of it, but then they sell it for a multiple that's significantly more than they could get now. So you mentioned how like these stories always seem to start in this space with rumor sources told me, and it's a very contentious spot. And so I want to get a little bit into, we joked about a cosmic source for information. Somehow stuff comes to you. Walk me through your process of, you probably get a lot of signal and a lot of noise. You've got to decide what to share, what not to share, how much to share. How does this all come about? How do you get the information? How do you decide what to share? What has been your background of this? Obviously, I get a lot of DMs. And interestingly enough, most of the best information that I get from DMs or on Signal or on Telegram, mostly Signal. Signal is kind of a signal, by the way, if you get my point. If a possible quote-unquote source, again, I'm not a reporter, source is a word, whatever. If somebody wants to give me more info and it's like, hey, can we get on Signal? That's generally a pretty good idea that they know what they're talking about and they want to be careful with it. It doesn't take more than five minutes to look up if somebody's legit, if they give you their real name. You just go and check them out on LinkedIn. Okay, is this guy's background what he says it is? Then you ask more questions. You use a little bit of common sense. Maybe look around with some of your other contacts. Say, hey, I just was past this. What do you think? Have you heard anything? Yeah, I heard that the other day. It's kind of crazy, huh? And then you're like, okay, it's Twitter. I'll put something up. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But most of the time, you're either early or you're just right. Social media, but more specifically Twitter, especially crypto Twitter, people just are comfortable passing information in a way that finds its way to the conversation as opposed to the quote unquote old school way of traditional reporting and the like. In fact, just Twitter as an organization has skewed that way in terms of citizen quote unquote reporting and gets things before traditional media does. That's been going on for forever. In these situations, how do I go about quote unquote vetting? I, I don't know if there's a real process to it other than if you hear something from people that you can verify that they're real and that they either worked at the place or real adjacent to the place or have a long history in the ecosystem and it comes from three or four people, then probably a pretty good chance that I'll soft pedal this a little bit, but then when you post it, you get more information. Well, yeah, I'm up. this is the real deal. Then you follow it up with something or you chase something else down. It's obvious at times. At times, if you're not completely on point, let people shoot it out in the comments underneath and let it play itself out. Like yesterday, the Coinbase thing. I had Coinbase comms people reaching out saying, 
what you posted isn't true. Now, there's a lot of ways you can take those words and adjust how what they mean. But I thought it was responsible enough to put another comment underneath my initial post said, listen, Coinbase comms reached out. They don't agree with what I posted. So people should know. But it's great. I mean, it's a crazy amount of noise right now. I heard the Coinbase stuff from seven different people. I'll give you three names. These are people that are paragons of the industry that are invited and fed cake to speak at all the conferences. Whatever version of that story plays itself out, I'm not vested in it, but I think it's just another marker that we're in an environment right now that is really concerning. And if you have meaningful assets in the crypto ecosystem, just protect yourself. I don't care what organization it is. Listen, I chose Gemini because I'm like, well, these guys done a lot of stuff and they've worked hard at trying to be compliant in New York, which is the hardest place to be. Trust me, I'm not going to lose my money here. And a lot of people almost did or sort of did. So basically, I skew towards right now in this environment, self-custody your assets. Don't have them on exchanges. What exchange? Literally every exchange that tries to do business here in the United States is under some sort of SEC or DOJ investigation. Gemini, Kraken, Binance, DCG, Genesis, Coinbase has paid SEC fines. Everybody is under the microscope right now. And until all of that figures itself out, I'm a huge proponent of crypto and the ecosystem and build inside of it. But just protect yourself. I saw a tweet from somebody and I retweeted today that said, there's so many potential black swan events on the playing field right now. Binance can't do USD withdrawals or deposits. Brian Armstrong is talking about rumors and staking and Coinbase. The CEO of a public company doesn't come on Twitter and just waste his breath because he's bored. That doesn't happen. Genesis, DCG, Genesis goes bankrupt. There's a lot of things going on that give you pause and say, why put your assets at risk by not holding them yourself? And so that's foundationally where my impetus comes from right now. I could shut my Twitter account down tomorrow and not give it much thought because it's not my job. It's not what I do for a living. I just feel like, People need to know that while a lot of us believe that this is the future of finance, it's a pretty risky playing field right now. It just is. I think one of the first rumors several weeks ago that you couldn't withdraw from Binance started. There's always headlines with them that the DOJ was ready to bring a settlement at some point. And it's back and forth. And so I think people have expected something, but it came and went. And you started talking about it with the different venues. And now it seems Nick Carter, who I have deep respect for as a friend, comes out with a post about it being Operation Choke Point that behind the scenes, the OCC, potentially other regulators in a coordinated effort, were trying to squeeze the on and off ramps through the banking space. Could you talk a little bit more about the current going-ons that's leading to this level of concern? So first of all, Nick Carter is about as smart a guy in the crypto space as there is. And 
There is no question based on everybody I've talked to over the last three days that is deeply involved in the banking process and increasing banking access to the crypto ecosystem. There's no question that Operation Choke Point, as it's been dubbed, is happening. Zero question. The Federal Reserve and other agencies are signaling to traditional banks and traditional finance, don't touch crypto. And if you do, we'll come after you. It's very, very real. The amount of stuff that I've heard that I've not posted is just mind-blowing. Something that I have posted is that there could be an action against Morgan Stanley. Think about that for a minute. You know, Morgan Stanley goes toe-to-toe with Goldman Sachs every day across the globe as one of the biggest investment banks in the world. One of the biggest wealth management firms in the world. They're a massive, massive operation. You could make the case that globally, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and then internationally, a firm like UBS are the biggest banks in the world, biggest institutions in the world. Bank of America is just here in the United States, so that's why I'm not including that. So the idea that there are legitimate, real rumors and concerns that the Fed and the OCC are going to lop off a finger at Morgan Stanley for giving their clients access to cryptocurrency via Galaxy Digital and others is incredible. And there's also commentary and, again, info that I've been given that The OCC and the Fed are also going to go after actual states, not just companies, but states and the way that they handle their banking charters and all those processes, that they're going to go after states. So point being is, if that stuff is happening, and I'm getting that information from guys that are about to leave the OCC or worked there previously or are in the rooms while they're having meetings as consultants, yada, yada, yada. If the OCC is willing to go after an entire state like Wyoming and a global investment bank like Morgan Stanley, the signatures in the Silvergates of the world are nothing. Coinbase is nothing. Yeah, let's send a note to Coinbase telling them, you guys probably shut that off. We got bigger fish to fry. We're going to go to court with Wyoming or Morgan Stanley. But that's the point is that this is very, very real. And I put out another piece of info that most people don't see, and I didn't understand until a couple of days ago. And that's the regulatory process called CAMELS, where there is a point system of data associated with banks that has to do with their liquidity and their asset stuff and their management and their positioning. And there's all kinds of stuff like that. You don't want to not be in a really good spot on your CAMEL score because then you have real problems within the federal banking system. And they're basically threatening different banks saying, listen, you're good now, but if we hear that you're considering onboarding crypto companies or creating systems that can be used crypto companies, we're going to hammer your camel score. It's not entirely public right now, but it absolutely is happening behind the scenes, just not in the press yet. Really, really fascinating stuff. Not good at all, because one of the OCC sources I have is like a third of the employees here are ready to quit. And the reason why they're ready to quit is because, one, this is agency overreach, so much so that it's administrative 
it's against the law what they're doing. And then two, this just deepens the process by which good actors can't exist here in the United States. It's going to push everybody offshore, which is only going to increase the chances that the next FTX or hodgepodge of FTXs are around the corner. So it increases the chances that bad actors are going to find safe places to do business. When you're Coinbase and you have bent over backwards with the SEC and you have done everything you can in every way to not just find favor, but just absolutely play by the rules. And every single time you don't know, not sure what the rule is, you raise your hand and say, I really would like to know what the rule is because we want to make sure we're doing it the right way. And basically the teacher says, "Mm, we're not going to tell you, you should know the rule, but we're not going to tell you. And if you mess up, we're going to hold you accountable. How do you operate in that way? While at the same time, other agencies are allowing you to be a public company. It's madness. I feel terrible for Coinbase. They're trying to be the best actor. They're essentially the anti-Binance. They've onboarded millions upon millions of people into the ecosystem. And it's as if the agencies treat them like they're some sort of third world kind of drug money financier or something. It's brutal. Think about this. Coinbase is trying to do all these things, but an organization like HSBC is found to literally be the bank of cartels and criminals all across the globe. And that organization can still have branches and do business here in the United States. That makes no sense. No sense. I'm a big college football guy. It's the version of Kansas State is going to get a year-long suspension from bowl games because they paid for a recruit steak dinner when they weren't supposed to, but yet LSU was paying guys $90,000 a month before it was legal. There's there's no balance there. doesn't make any sense. So you feel bad for Coinbase, but you also feel bad for a place like Custodia. Caitlin Wong had a conversation with her and it's nearly impossible. You're trying to do everything you can. You're following every process in every way. You've worked so hard to build up a war chest that gives you one-to-one reserves. You know how hard that is to do? I mean, it's really hard to do. And then just out of nowhere, nope, you're denied. And the reason you're denied is not really, doesn't have much to do with the law. Just we don't like crypto and we want to use you as an example. Let everybody know, hey, it's not going to happen. Here's the truth for your listeners. The reason why banking matters with crypto. If you don't have a bank in the United States as somebody that's your payments processor, what's the one thing that you have to do from a bank that if you don't have a bank, you can't do when you're a business? You can't get cash. You can't write checks. You can't pay anything. You can't pay your taxes. You can't pay taxes any way other than sending it from a bank to the federal government. You can't send the federal government currently in the United States Bitcoin. You can't. You have to have a bank account to pay your payroll taxes, to pay your quarterly tax, any tax that you have. That's the only way that you're allowed to pay taxes in the United States. So to be a business that's generating revenue, the purpose based on the way the state and the federal government looks at it is we're really happy for you, but there are laws here that 
we get a piece of the revenue you generate. And this is the only way that you send it to us is via our banking system. If you're debanked, you can't pay taxes, which means you can't be a business. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And so choke point, that's a meaningful mantra. How does this end? Is this a thing in your opinion? We talked about financial crises and looking back over time, is this something that ends up in the court system where we have to have the state of Wyoming versus the federal government versus states' rights and banks suing for what can or can't be done under regulation? I don't know. I could proffer a guess and Custodia Bank is suing the Federal Reserve. They filed suit against the Federal Reserve several months ago. And in fact, two days ago, they were about to get into discovery and the Federal Reserve asked for a stay because it seems that they didn't necessarily want to really get into discovery. At least that's what I was told. We may be talking about litigation here because here's the other thing. This isn't really Democrats versus Republicans either because these agencies, they don't turn over based on different political values and administrations. The Federal Reserve is the Federal Reserve. Those people are there for a long time. And I would imagine that the agencies underneath it, the OCC, can anybody name anybody that works at the OCC? 9% of people on Twitter that are in crypto had no idea what the OCC even was or it existed. Thinking about Brian Brooks, because he went to run Bitfury and he was from the OCC. Yeah, but that's not part of his resume that we even thought of. We thought about other things. It's the reason why when Nick put out a tweet a couple of days ago that he started it with, I don't mean to raise alarm here, but this is a problem. Do you have any insight in all the stuff you get to traffic and information of if this is coordinated by the administration, if this is from certain senators or different groups, or is this just happening in reaction to all the bad that happened with the fraud and blowups? I think the FTX stuff is a cover for saying if there's huge pushback, if there's a massive pushback or lobbying for a while, all they have to do is say three letters, FTX. You can tell me that blah, 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 but this guy that everybody thought was the smartest person in the world vaporized $50 billion. What else do you want to talk about? We got to protect people. So there's that. Is it an administrative thing? There's no question it's coordinated. That's why another comment I had the other day was we all laughed at the Bitslato thing, which in the moment it was absurd. But Every financial regulatory agency that mattered was on that stage. Why? It could have very well been just the DOJ or just the SEC, but it was OFAC, it was FinCEN, it was Treasury, it was the DOJ, it was the SEC, it was the New York AG. It was everybody. Once I read Nick's tweet, I thought about him, okay. Now that makes sense. There isn't an agency right now that is in a position of potential safe harbor for crypto. doesn't exist. There's not an agency that has the head of it or is somewhat friendly currently to crypto in the United States. There isn't. I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't have that info. I just know that over the past week, as this has come to light... I just keep hearing the term draconian 
that what's going on here is so serious that people that are part of these agencies are even starting to question, what are we doing here? What's going on? We'll see how it plays out. I've put out stuff that I've been given that I feel been given to me by folks that are the real deal. Well, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily all going to come true, but we'll see. One other point, I do find it really interesting that DOJ has had its hands on Binance for a while. They've not done anything. The geopolitical backdrop to that is fascinating to me because Binance is effectively a Chinese company. And it's very interesting to me that the DOJ and the SEC are quick to run around playing whack-a-mole with the Krakens of the world. They continue to put out and leak info that they've got just an enormous amount of quote-unquote evidence, but they don't do anything. I don't know. It's very interesting to me that there's probably something bigger going on there that's not necessarily just about potential money laundering or whatever they're looking at. That keeps me quite interested in that process. I haven't talked to anybody that's told me, yeah, geopolitical, that's the reason we haven't done anything, but it just feels that way to me. It's interesting. Of the stuff that you've been told that you haven't shared on Twitter yet, are there things or themes that you can share beyond the Binance that you're thinking about or your next shoe to drop? I would just say that people that have worked very hard inside of the regulatory environment are very, very concerned that licenses that already even exist are at risk. That very, very connected VCs, which by the way, Nick Carter is a principal of a pretty serious VC. Castle Island Ventures, even VCs that have put a lot of effort into crypto companies are calling other contacts that they have that aren't in their immediate reach saying, we're getting concerned here. What's going to happen to this, this, or this if their ability to bank goes away? That would make some of these positions enormously less valuable. What's going on? I think that Next shoe to drop or not, people are just very concerned. People that are close enough to these agencies and organizations and the whole choke point 2.0, it's more than just, hey, Signature Bank can't do any crypto business anymore. It's way more than that. They're very, very, very concerned. We'll see how it plays out. We'll see. We haven't really talked much about your new business. What are you most excited to? build or see done over the next six months, then on a positive note, and over the next six years? I'm co-founder of a company that we peddle our wares back and forth in between both crypto ecosystem and traditional finance. So our main product that we've done no marketing for and haven't really shown to the public are automated trading algorithms that, that trade in traditional markets, generate revenue and returns on a daily basis, but in a truly automated way. So it's using code to take the data associated with market movements and generate return in that way. We've got, I think, 32 of them right now, and we've got another, I don't know, 60 or so in development. So excited about that. We're close to going very public with those and marketing those in a real way and giving everybody an opportunity to have access to those. Really what it is, is the Bridgewaters and the Renaissances of the world, massive hedge funds, 
have used automation and the ability to use computer algorithms to trade tick by tick with very, very liquid markets and benefit and create billions of dollars in returns that way. But that's only been available to massive institutions over the years. We're going to put that in a real way into everyday people's hands if they'd like to. Secondarily, the other part of our business is very focused on the blockchain space. We do work with Blockstream. We work with the Liquid Network. We believe that there is almost an unending opportunity associated with blockchain authentication access, what I would call alternative assets in the digital space. The ability to work with an Aston Martin brand. And that brand tells us that we're going to put out a one-of-a-kind car. There's only going to be 1,200 of them in the world. But oftentimes when we do this, several hundred of them will get bought and then they're resold very quickly. And the ability to manage that inventory and manage the halo around that portion of the brand is very difficult. Well, blockchain can fix that by leveraging the ownership process via the blockchain, leveraging the titling of the vehicle on the blockchain, and then building into that smart contract that the vehicle can't be resold for a number of years to another party. So the entirety of the ownership process, the entirety of the service process is all authenticated on the blockchain and lives there. We think that kind of thing is going to play itself out over the next three to five years to just almost every industry that access to data, the authentication of that data, there's probably going to be a way in which if your data in whatever industry isn't authenticated on the blockchain, it's going to be less valuable. We're doing work in that area, pilot program in Europe, a couple of larger banks. So we're excited about it. I'm a big believer in crypto ecosystem at large big believer in Bitcoin. I'll give a shout out to one of my favorite projects. And it's been one of my favorites since 2017. And that's Numerai. Love what they do. It's the coolest thing in the world with their token. And it's AI and artificial intelligence before it was cool. And the way that they take their token and stake ideas for beating the market on a day-by-day basis with data scientists across the world the best ideas that beat the market get then shifted into their hedge fund. And that's how they create returns. Really, really amazing project. And I've known about them for, I don't know, five or six years now. It's true utility for an actual cryptocurrency because you're staking your idea with their numeraire token. And if your idea works, you get more of it. If your idea doesn't work, it's burnt big fan of what they do. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Well, I've I've enjoyed it myself and thank you for taking the time. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 